Jesus is Lord. He is God Almighty in human flesh. And the Jews understood this better than many liberal Protestants in our day. They say, well, Jesus didn't really know he was God. That's just something that we made up centuries later. Oh, really? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 10 of the book of Romans. This is known as the national section. And as we pick up, Pastor Brogy explains how the moral standards of man don't even begin to compare to the standards of God. Only Jesus met that perfect standard, which is why we proclaim Jesus is Lord. Now you can try to convince yourself in your own mind that you and God, you know, you're okay. People tell me that all the time. You know, God and I, we've got this understanding, you know, he, he respects me and I respect him and, you know, I'm okay. And you can manipulate the standards and readjust your thinking away from the scripture and you'll find yourself someday in hell. It's an awful thing. And people all the time manipulate the standards. I was reading this week of Dennis Lee Curtis, who was arrested in Rapid City, South Dakota for armed robbery. And Mr. Curtis had a set of moral scruples about himself, about his thievery. In fact, in his wallet, he had a list of things that he had written called the robber's rules. Let me read them to you. He said, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will not take cash and food. I will take cash and food steps, no food stamps, no checks. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will not rob mini marts or 7-Elevens. If I get chased by the cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will only rob seven months out of the year. I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. So he had a sense of morality, but it was a flawed morality. And when he stood before the court, his morality did not stand. He had to stand under a higher morality by the higher law of the state. Likewise, when we stand before God, your morality will be based on God's morality. And when you recognize that, then you say what Isaiah says when he says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Not our bad deeds, but our best deeds in the eyes of an absolutely holy God are like filthy rags. You say, but I feel good about myself and people speak good about me. When you seek God someday, you will only be able to say what the prophet said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what Moses taught, Paul taught. In fact, every writer in the New Testament taught it. Hold your finger here in Romans and turn to the book of James. Go to James chapter 2. Many of you are new to the Bible. Some of you listening today in our Bluffton campus, we're so glad you're there. Turn to James 2, find Revelation and just scan back a little bit. And right after Hebrews, you will come to James. Go to James chapter 2. James 2 is a very helpful section of Scripture in personal evangelism. And uh, if you remember the subject of James 2, he's dealing in the first half of the chapter with partiality. And he gave the illustration, if you remember, of the rich man who comes to church and he's treated like royalty. 
and the poor man who comes to church and he's snubbed. And he warns Christians not to show partiality. Now look at James 2 and verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's the application. If you're keeping the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. To show partiality is not to love your neighbor. It's to misrepresent the law of God. It is, in verse 9, called a transgression of the law. It's not just a breach of manners. It's sin. We reason, but I'm only human. Or that's just who I am. Or that's just the way I was raised. Well, you may be, have been raised that way, but you cannot manipulate what God has said, like the thief in South Dakota did in his own mind. And so to drive home the seriousness of this sin, to drive home the seriousness of showing partiality, however that may be, racially, educationally, economically, he says here in verse 10, notice, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, the apostle James is writing to a group of Jews who did not relate the commandments one to another. And that's why he quotes the royal law, recognizing that the whole law, as Jesus affirmed, is uh, connected together and equal to one another based on loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. But they reasoned, well, if I kept this commandment over here, I get a plus. And if I violate this commandment over here, I get a negative. But at least I have more pluses than negative. And so it's not a big deal that maybe I show partiality on occasion. And James says, that's not the way the law works. I use verse 10 all the time in evangelism for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The law is like a window pane. When you smash it, you can't say, well, part of it's broken. No, the whole thing's broken. The whole thing needs to be replaced. In the same way, when you break the law, you can't say, well, I just broke part of the law. In God's eyes, in the presence of an infinitely holy God who's the antithesis of what we are, it's like you broke every commandment. To have kept the whole law and just to have broken one commandment is to be guilty of all. Now go back to Romans chapter 10. This is what Paul, like Moses, like James, is affirming. The man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Our best shot of trying to keep God's law will woefully fall short of what he demands. So the first reason they rejected Jesus as Lord, the reason they rejected him as the Savior of the world, is because they failed to recognize that achieving God's righteousness is impossible. But there's a second reason why they rejected the Lord Jesus, and it is because approaching God's righteousness is fatal. If you only approach God's righteousness, in the end, it's absolutely fatal. And you may be here in this room today, or you're listening to me on the Bluffton campus, or you're listening by radio or television, and you may be very close to being saved, but being close is not close enough. 
unless you get saved, it doesn't matter how close you come to the kingdom, you must enter into the kingdom of God. So how do we receive this righteousness? Well, let's read verses 6 through 8 to get a feel for the overall text, and then we'll look at the details. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Now, some of you may be closer to salvation than you really realize. I'm speaking to those, of course, who have not yet met Christ, who have not yet been born again. And you are so close to being saved, you don't even realize how close you are. So what is this passage saying? Follow carefully. Look again at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Now, if you are wondering what these words mean, please listen carefully because this is a text of Scripture and a passage of Scripture that has often been abused and misunderstood. If you have the New American Standard, they show Old Testament quotes by putting them in all capital letters. Different publishers and different translations do it in different way, but you will see that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And if you go out into the margin, if you have marginal notes, and I hope you do, if you don't, you need to get a Bible like that, go out into the margin and notice where this is coming from. Where's it coming from? Deuteronomy 30, I heard someone say that. This comes from Moses. He's quoting Moses. He's quoting the Torah. And the context of Deuteronomy 30 is it's just before Moses dies, just before his funeral. And he exhorts the people of God to be faithful to God, to obey his word. Let me read it to you, Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. For this commandment, Moses says, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it? And for us, and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us uh, to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. Now, again, in the context, Moses is talking about the people of Israel obeying the covenant as a nation. And he wants them to know that the point that he's making is not so mysterious for them that they can't understand it, and it's not so far away that they can't get a hold of it. He's saying it's right there. It's understandable, and it's right near you. And Paul takes this Old Testament event, and he applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says here in verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Now, you know, in the Greek New Testament, there is no punctuation. The way a writer in Koine Greek punctuated a sentence was by the way he constructed it. And so you phrased a sentence in a certain way and you knew that was a question. And there is a way to structure a sentence where you were giving a parenthetical thought. And so the English text rightly reflects here a parenthesis. Paul is saying, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, and then wanting to parenthetically apply it not as Moses did, but to Christ, 
He says that is to bring Christ down. He's simply saying, brethren, we don't need to send a messenger to heaven to say, Lord Jesus, would you please come down here and become a man for us and die on the cross? We don't need to send an ambassador to heaven to plead our case. We don't need to say, oh God, please, planet Earth needs a savior. Please, dear God, send a savior. No, we don't need to ascend into heaven to do that, to bring Messiah down. Why? Because Messiah has already come down. Continue to read here in verse 7. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, applied to Christ, to bring Christ up from the dead. We don't need to go down into the abyss. Now, Moses said the sea. And because in Jewish thought, the sea was an equivalent to the abyss. And so you see it used that way interchangeably in the New Testament in the Revelation. And two, you will see it reads just a little bit differently when you flip into your Old Testament text because you're reading the Hebrew translation into English when you read the Old Testament, but very often the New Testament quotes the Septuagint. The Septuagint, if you remember, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Because most Jewish people did not speak Hebrew in the first century. Most spoke Greek. That was the international language. And so like you are not reading the Greek New Testament today, you're reading it in your language. You're reading it in English. We're reading the English text because that's the language we speak. Well, they read it in Greek. And Paul repeatedly quotes the Septuagint in his epistles, as does the Lord Jesus. Sometimes they quote the Hebrew, but most of the time they quote the Septuagint. So he's saying, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up. We don't need to send someone down into the abyss, into the gloomy recesses of the sea or the grave, to death and hell and ask Christ to come up from the dead. Why? Because, dear friend, he's already been to the abyss. He's already been to Hades and he's come up. He's already been raised from the dead. So the point Moses makes is similar to what Paul is making here. Since the Israelites in that day didn't need to say, well, let's go up into heaven and get a message from God. We don't have to. He's already given us his word. We don't have to go across the sea to find out what God wants us to do. Why not? Because he's already given us the word. The word was near them. And in effect, Paul is taking the same truth and he's applying it to the Lord Jesus. No one needs to go to heaven to bring Christ down. No one needs to go to the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead because he's already come down in the incarnation and he's already come up in the resurrection. And so like in Moses' day, the message was near to them. It was right there for them. The gospel, the word of faith was available to them. Now, do you see the progression here? Follow it carefully. The chapter opens describing these self-righteous Jews who are like so many people today. They needed to be saved by grace like all of us here today. They tried to achieve their own righteousness, tried to get into heaven by the things they did like so many people today. They would not submit to the righteousness of God. That's rebellion like so many people today. They didn't realize their need because their pride blinded them to their need that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes like so many people today. They did not understand what the Bible teaches, that salvation is by grace like so many people today. They did not understand what the people throughout the centuries have missed in pride, that you must come as a sinner if you are ever going to be saved. The righteousness based on faith, verse 6, speaks as follows. Salvation 
or righteousness is by faith. Salvation or righteousness is so close, you don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to say, Messiah, where are you? Where are you, Savior? Are you way down there? Are you way up there? No, he's already come down. He's already come up. He's already left heaven. He's already become a man. He's already died on a cross. He's already descended into the grave. And he's already been raised on the third day. Now, let me tell you how close some of these Jewish people, remember, that's whom he's describing, but we can extend the application to us. Let me tell you how close some of these Jewish people were to their salvation. Notice verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Salvation is so close, it is right there, he says, in your heart and in your mouth. The message of salvation is that near. That is the word of faith, which we, meaning Paul and all the apostles, are preaching. That's how close salvation was to these Jewish people. He's saying it's right in your heart, and it's right in your mouth. And I would say to everyone in this room, it is right in your heart, and it is right in your mouth. You say, well, pastor, I'm not yet a Christian. Are you saying that it is in my heart? Yes, the word is in your heart. That's what Paul says. You say, pastor, I'm not yet a Christian. Are you saying the word is in my mouth? Yes, it is in your mouth. Well, how did it get into my mouth? How did it get into my heart? I just preached it there a minute ago. The word that I am preaching to you, the word of faith, it's right there. It is in your heart and it is in your mouth. Does that mean you are saved? No, it does not. Does that mean that these Jews who had the word preached to them into their hearts and into their mouths were saved? No, it did not. Not yet. The word of faith had been preached there, but they had not yet been, had not yet responded to it. It was like a seed. It was dormant. It was longing. It was waiting. It was looking, but it still had to be responded to. But once the word comes into your heart and once the word comes into your mouth, the heart needs to say amen to that truth. It needs to respond. And when your heart, in effect, your will says what God says, when your heart says amen to what God says and your mouth will confess it. That's the point he is making. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks It's really exciting when you think about it. That's how close salvation is. That's how near it was to them in Moses' day, and that's how near it is to us in our day. And so these Hebrew people, they missed the Savior of the world. Why? Because they did not understand that achieving God's righteousness is impossible. They did not understand that approaching God's righteousness, just to come near to his righteousness, just to come near to the kingdom without entering in is fatal. But third and finally, announcing God's righteousness is salvation. Announcing his righteousness is salvation. And so how does God's great salvation become real for you? What are you to do with this word that I just preached to you? Look at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if you will notice here on the screen, you see the little word as, it's in italics. And if you remember in the English Bibles for the last 400 years when italics are used, unlike modern English, italics are not used for emphasis, 
but italics are used to smooth out the reading from the original language into the receptor language, English, or words that are just not there in the original text but are implied in the original text. And sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's distracting. But literally, it reads, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. Now, that statement was not to be taken lightly in Paul's day. You see, Christianity in the Roman Empire became a force that needed to be reckoned with. And the Roman Empire said, you can believe any religion you wanted. But they, in the process, said, whatever you believe, you cannot disrupt the unity of the empire. And so there came a point in the Roman Empire where Christianity had spread so fast and so far and so wide where millions of people have met Christ, though they were still a minority, God's people have always been a remnant. They required once a year for every Roman citizen to say, Caesar Curios, meaning Caesar Lord. Caesars, of course, claim to be gods in human flesh. Caesar is Lord. And the Christian would shake his head and say, no, Christos, Kyrios, or Aesus, Kyrios. Jesus is Lord or Christ is Lord. And as time progressed, that meant persecution for the believer. And tens of thousands of Christians were bloodied in the Roman Colosseums because they would not say, Caesar, Curios, but they said, Christos, Curios. Now, the Greek word Curios, Lord, can in some contexts be used just as a term of respect, meaning sir or teacher or reverend teacher, but it is typically used in the Bible as a term of deity. And so when Paul takes the truth in Philippians, he says, a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is Yahweh. It's very interesting, again, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word Yahweh appears about 6,000 times. And in every instance in the Greek translation, it is translated Kyrios, Kyrios, Lord. Jesus is described as Kyrios, Lord. Why? Because he shares the exact same nature, the exact same attributes, authority, power, holiness as God the Father. So if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, is what he is affirming. Now, let me just say parenthetically here. There are some Christians who try to bolster their position on lordship salvation, and this is one of the verses they often use, and they would translate the verse in this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord or your master, then you will be saved. In other words, for them, they would say that if you are a true Christian, it demands the lordship of Christ. And in many respects, they are absolutely right. But I want you to see that is not what this verse is referring to. It trivializes the meaning of this verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus, Yahweh, God, that's the point of the verse. And again, that is affirmed throughout the Septuagint. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Now, let me just say parenthetically, there are Christians today who say, well, Jesus is my Savior, but He's just not my Lord. He's just not my Master. And they view salvation as a form of fire insurance from hell. 
I'm going. I may be living with this woman for the last five years, but thank God he's saved me. He may be my savior, he's just not my Lord. And they are deceived. And it's to such people that Jesus will say, as Matthew 7 affirms, I never knew you. It is impossible and it was absurd for any Christian in the New Testament to think that somehow you could take Jesus as your savior without taking him as your Lord as your master, as your king, as your authority. Listen, when you come to Christ, you come to Christ for forgiveness, and forgiveness presupposes that you are a sinner, and God has dealt with you that sin is sin. And if you really recognize sin is sin, you recognize it as needing to be forgiven. And if you say, I want it to be forgiven, but I don't really want it to be changed, then you're really not calling it sin. And there are many deceived people in our day. But please understand, that's not what this verse is speaking of. This verse is dealing with the subject that Jesus is Yahweh. And what I find so ironic is that there is a cult in our nation, really across the world, called Jehovah Witnesses. And by the way, you could take in Hebrew, in the Hebrew manuscripts, there are no vowels. The the reader supplies the vowels in his mind. And there came a point because the Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew that at one point in their history when they came to these four consonants in English, Y-H-W-H, they were afraid that they might mispronounce it. And they saw the name of God as being so sacred that they didn't want to mispronounce it because you could supply the vowels where it would say Yahweh or you could supply the vowels where it would say Yahovah. But there's a cult in our nation called the Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the deity of Christ, and yet the very term they use is the term of which Jesus is described in this verse. Jesus, kurios. Jesus, Yahweh. Jesus, Jehovah. And so a day is coming, as Paul affirms in Philippians 2, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those that are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh, Jehovah. Jesus is Lord. He is God Almighty in human flesh. And the Jews understood this better than many liberal Protestants in our day. They say, well, Jesus didn't really know he was God. That's just something that we made up centuries later. Oh, really? John 5, 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was not claiming just to be a good teacher or an excellent moral example. He was claiming to be God in human flesh. And for a Jew to pronounce that in the first century would turn his world upside down. To say that Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, is Yahweh would have meant to be ostracized. That's what it meant. For a Gentile to say, Jesus is Yahweh, would have meant to have denied all the other gods in the Roman Empire, and to say that there is one true God, and ultimately it would mean death for tens of thousands. To be someone's Lord means that you live at the pleasure of that individual. And to call Jesus Lord means to be totally committed to Him, to put your trust in Him, to live for Him, and to take Him at His word. To listen again to today's message entitled, Close But Not Close Enough, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, we conclude our look at what it means to have Jesus as Lord as we continue our study of Romans chapter 10. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.